and welcome to Spooky Spokes, the two-wheel motorcycle podcast brought to you by patron support. For more information, take your soul over to patreon.com forward slash creative writing. See you in the afterlife. Welcome to Spooky Spokes, you bastards. Thank you for all who... uh, Hang on. All right. I figured I'd let that get out of here. Uh, Now for the cheesy sound effects. Thank you for everybody that submitted to this year's Spooky Spokes. I hope you like my crummy effects. I hope it's spooky. And I hope you're hearing this late on Friday night. I promise I won't do these crummy, crummy sound effects the whole show, but I wanted to make sure your Friday night was creeptacular. After all, you may be done partying, and you may be done wearing your cheap Walmart makeup and crappy costume. But it is, however, still time for the spirits to roam this world. And uh, Dios de los Motos continues long, long after you forgot the hangover from Wednesday night's work party where you won top notch for being the dumbest, uh, I don't know, character from the coolest new movie, you jerkwad. Uh, now, Kevin, get back to accounting and listen to Spooky Spokes 3, the third installment of our annual Fright Fest of Motorcycle Tactas Chili Box Opulas. I made those words up, but they are frightening, don't you agree? <laughs> On to the show. All right, everybody, this is Junk. Coming to you live from Creative Writing Studios. Friday night, I've waited until Dias de los Motos. Uh, And for everybody celebrating Dias de los Muertos, uh, I hope you have a wonderful celebration this year. It's the time of year where we remember past ones with uh, photos, offerings, and uh, other embodiments of the flesh. And it's a time when the spirit world is the thinnest to this world. And most of the Halloween, as we call it, traditions and and, uh, whatever you might call it in your culture, uh, a lot of these traditions started because of the ancient beliefs and uh, the time when this, this part of the earth goes into its own sort of transition to sleep. And the harvests were made, and we begin a new chapter. A lot of the calendars actually started, I think, around this time, not not in January. Um, 
but anyways, get, getting away from that, I for, would like to say thank you to all who submitted this year, and I uh, can't wait to pull some names out of the hat, and um, yeah, to see who's going to win for our patrons. Of course, if you're a Patreon subscriber, um, go to www.patreon.com forward slash creative writing. I'd like to say hi to our latest patron, Ray. Thank you so much for signing up, and um yeah, go over there for a chance to win. Uh, you don't have to submit a Spooky Spoke or a Solstice Slam, which is our like spring slash summertime, uh, whatever you want to call this. The, we, we, do, we do spooky submissions this type of year or, you know, scary, whatever. And uh, in the Solstice Slam, it's all just about your ride stories, uh, your crashes, your achievements, whatever. We just, we like to, I like to open it up uh be like kind of like the moth where we do some storytelling and get other people excited about motorcycling and about what we're doing. We all know what friggin' you know, Valentino Rossi's doing and we all know what Jared Meese is doing because all we got to do is turn on the TV and there they are, Johnny Ray and even Michael Dunlop, all these people that race all these different disciplines. We got it, you know? And uh, we want to know what you're up to. So that's what this is all about. And this type of year, time of year... We want to hear all about your spooky submissions just because it's always a fun thing. Before this turns into a total uh, consumer F fest of, you know, who can, you know, candy companies, keep candy companies and crappy costume companies in, uh, in business through Amazon, who's going to eventually take over the world. I want to make this about the spooky things, the spiritual things, the things that no company can sell you, the things that you can only experience by getting out there on the road this time of year and riding, getting a little spooked. And uh, yeah, so let me know, send them in. And uh, so it's Friday night, Uh, the kids are in bed, you've got your beer in hand, you're probably... You're not watching sports because I don't think there's sports on right now, but uh, you're hoping for something to listen to, and there's nothing good on the TV, so why not pop open a creative writing episode? Yeah, it's a good idea. So let's get started. Let's get right into it this year. Um, we're already six and a half minutes in, and I've stalled long enough. Uh, first off, first announcement of the show, um, a, a heartfelt and deeply regretful um, sorrowful love sent out to um, Beulah from Girl on the Moto podcast. If you listen to Girl on the Moto, you know that Beulah is the uh, rock and raging, always funny side, um, better side to Connie's. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding, Connie. Beulah, anyway, is like the uh, is the co-host on Girl on a Moto. Let's just leave it at that. And um, she brings a different perspective than, uh, than Connie does. And she's always got some good stuff to say. And she's a pretty awesome person. She does a lot of stuff away from the podcast as well. That's bike related. And I just want to say a big shout out and th- th- hugs thrown her way. I've already, uh, talked to her privately on, um, Instagram because her husband, uh, passed about, I believe it's about a week ago now. Um, in a tragic car accident. And so I think there's a fund. If you would like to go to Girl on a Moto, you can see a little fundraiser. You know, this came out of the blue. Nobody ever expects that to happen. Um, and so I just, I, I, I don't have words. I can't say like, oh, I know how you feel or I'm so sorry. That doesn't really um, do anything, you know, for, for her. So all I can do is uh, send creative writings love her way and let her know that we're here for 
for her and and I, everybody. A lot of people have reached out, so it's it's awesome to see the moto community come together like that in a time of personal tragedy. Um, having said that, um, some other things to get into this year. We have a pretty cool submission, and I have um, Mrs. Writing stepped in. Uh, stepped up to the plate this year to give us a little funny, to me, it's a funny spooky story. To her, it was a freaking, you know, horror. So we'll hear from her. I have a cool little story about some local history and it's not necessarily motorcycle related, except for that uh, I ride my motorcycle over there all the time. And I thought, hey, it'd be cool to kind of like talk about this place. So I'm going to do that and uh, we'll get into some listener submissions. So... Um, let's get right into it. I'm going to let Miss Writing kick off the show with her terrifying tale of terror. (laughs) All right, let's get into it. All right, everybody, on tonight's show, take two, on tonight's show, I have a very spooky guest with me. It's Mrs. Creative Writing, and we are going to be talking about a spooky story that happened to her, and it's an example of how every spooky story doesn't have to involve terror or the supernatural. So I'm going to hand over the mic to her, uh, but first off, Miss Creative Writing, can you tell us approximately when this spooky story took place? Um, so this happened in the, about the 90s in a suburb of San Diego. Ew, so there's like no cell phones and internet was barely a thing. Well, we had beepers, but they didn't help much. <laughs> <laughs> Radical. All right, why don't you walk us through your spooky occurrence? So taking you back, where I lived in a two-story house at the end of the street, and so you would just end our backyard dipped in to a canyon that had like an old abandoned house in it. So we came home one evening, we being my friends and I, and my older sister. So there was three of us and we come into the house and nobody else is home. And we go upstairs and my sister and I had like a Jack and Jill bathroom. So there was, you know, two doors that lead into the bathroom. And so we went to one door and the door was locked. And so we went around to the other side and we went and twisted the doorknob. It was unlocked. We pushed it open and it slammed back in our faces. And we sat there for a second and we looked at each other. We did it again and it slammed in our faces. So of course, teenage girls, we went screaming, running out of the house. We ran next door. And we called 911. Well, our house was at the end of the street, but it also had this big window out in front so you could see into the house. So the police officers show up, and we see them covering each other, going up the stairs, and we're all like kind of excited that like this is all happening, you know, at our house, and we're watching it. And they go into the house, and they come out, and they come next door, and they say, well, Girls, we would arrest the pillow, but we think our officer, our, our, the person in charge, would get upset with us. So apparently what was happening is there was a chair inside our bathroom, and it had gotten moved by the door. So whenever we opened the door, the pillow was wedged between the door and the chair. So the pillow would fold when we pressed it open, and then when we let go of the door... It would 
go flat again and press the door closed. Luckily, my family did not get charged from the local police department, but it is a story that we love to tell. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's unexplained, and yeah, it's freaky because you're all you're home alone and it's all dark, and you have that weird. I, I vaguely remember that weird canyon, and yeah, who knows who could have creeped into your house from there? And yeah, sometimes the simplest things are the uh, most creepy. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us, and uh, peace out. Got any cool sign-offs? Bye. <laughs> Bye. Okay, thank you, Mrs. Writing. All right, everybody, well, let me get out of this crummy, uh, crummy special flag. I know it's cool and all, but you know what? I don't want to be cool tonight. I want to be regular of all nights. All right, everybody. Uh, on a night where the, uh, the spirit world is closer than ever, sometimes something as small as a pillow can set you on edge and get you, uh, you know, I think most of the times we get creeped out. It's our own thinking. It's the, uh, the things that we wonder, are they real? The things that we think, what, what is that little black shadow that I keep seeing out of the corner of my eye? The time you walk past a room, this happens to me all, this happened to me this whole week. And I don't know if it's because of spooky spokes and Halloween and all the scary stuff I've been listening to, but I walk by my kid's room and was that a kid standing in there? And I step back and of course it's not there at school. And I look by and it's like, ew, creepy. Anyway, yeah, sometimes the smallest things can play tricks on us and it's our own damn heads. Uh, I mean, imagine every horror film you ever saw, like Poltergeist or, uh, you know, one where there's not like a murderer chasing people down and just wonder, was all that stuff in their head? So, uh, yeah. The next submission comes to us from a listener, longtime listener and three-time Spooky Spoke submitator, submitator. Uh, his name is Nitrous Chris, and he comes to us from the cold reaches of Wisconsin, United States. For those of you that uh, live in other countries and are listening to this uh, via, you know, as a, as a vicarious way to experience uh, stuff going on here, Wisconsin is uh, way north and east of L.A., and it's the furthest 
that you can think of as far as, um, you know, terrain, as far as personalities, people are friendly, people are, you know, the rush of life is not as fast. Things are a little bit more um, rural, even in the cities. You know, it's just not as crazy as it is here in downtown LA, which is very urban. And I mean, people are so mindful, but at the same time, they're so rude and (laughs) me first. So imagine the nicest people in the world, but they got these funny accents because it's also really close to Canada, which means that right now, 50 is a really good day for them. There's been a lot of rain and it's going to be pretty cold. And Nitrous Chris took his last ride of the year in order to get this spooky spoke. Uh, I'd like to also mention that Nitrous Chris is the guy that took us to Holy Hill, which a uh, another listener um, submitted some pictures to the podcast a few couple of years ago um, after Spooky Spokes won, showing Holy Hill during the daytime and, and the area covered in snow. And I got to say, there are lots of woods around there. It is pretty spooky. And Chris and his buddy, he sent me in a letter, which I read. And uh, I want to say, if you guys are going to do spooky spokes, it's always just like the moth. Nobody gets up there and reads for those people. They read their own stories. So I love it when you guys submit your own stories and your own voices, because then you know how to, you know, the voices, you know, the, the times to accentuate. I'm just guessing when you send stuff to me. So the first year, just his story of Holy Hill gave me the creeps, the heebie-jeebies. And I I read it, you know? So, I mean, I was doing my own cadences going off of what I thought his story was about. But, man, Holy Hill sounds like a creepy place. And it is beautiful, I'll give it that. But at the same time, looking at the pictures of daytime and then whoosh, flip that 12 hours at, to, you know, the dark of night. And uh, it's a different th- different sort of atmosphere you know it's a different feeling so could not imagine holy hill he's also the guy that did this oh i'm out here at uh, bray road where supposedly the beast of bray road lives and uh as you can see the uh, roadside behind me here and uh i'm gonna go uh see if i can find a werewolf <laughs> so that is nitrous chris in a nutshell and uh thanks for cutting that music that was awesome anyway that was Nitrous Chris in a nutshell, and this was the outcome of that video. This guy's MF and crazy. So Nitrous Chris, not afraid of a werewolf. And cut. Thank you. I like these hard cuts on this music. Makes it kind of funny. Uh, makes it a little less scary for me to be sitting in here in the studio all alone. What is that? wiggling behind my toolboxes over there oh boy <laughs> heebie-jeebie time anyway yes he is uh he's nuts and he sent me an audio this year and um i just wanted to preface it to let you know that this guy is no coward uh he does some incredible stuff um including riding motorcycles at like 170 miles an hour so he doesn't have a whole lot of you know, fear left in his body. But it's amazing that every time he goes out and enjoys the wilds of Wisconsin, he always finds something new and weird. And it's enough to make him start shaking in his boots. Then I guarantee it'll be enough for us. Now here's some of the audio that Nitrous Chris sent in this year. So I'm starting on my spooky sports ride today. On a a Monday I took off of work. It's, uh, It's 50 degrees out, so I'm fully geared up in all my Wisconsin winter weather gear. Um, I'm going to ride to Plainfield, Wisconsin today. There's a uh, 
property up there in a cemetery. It was a pretty famous Wisconsin serial killer buried. Uh, so I'm going to go check that out. So he is going to go to Plainfield, Wisconsin and check out a famous burial place of a, of a famous Wisconsin serial killer. And I thought that was unique. Um, a lot of background noise there, a lot of you know stuff happening where he's at. And uh, here's some more of the audio. Just going to give you this for a reference because there's something else I found out a little bit later. Hello, Creative Writing. This is uh, Chris Singsheim here from uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin. Uh, this edition of uh, Spooky Spokes, I decided to go uh, about 137 miles-ish north of home to uh, Plainfield, Wisconsin, where uh, the butcher of Plainfield is from, Ed Gein, and I'm actually right outside of the property where the old house was and where they found all of the pretty gross things that were going on there. So now he goes into detail. He starts talking about Ed Gein. If you don't know Ed Gein, he's the guy that uh, the movie Psycho was uh, created, you know, or based on um, just because he really loved his mother. He did a lot of these, I don't know if he did a lot of this stuff in worship of his mother or what it was. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not like a, a true crime buff. Not yet anyway, but after a few few more spooky spokes, I may be. But anyways, he, um, very interesting story. And, uh, you know, as with every crazy maniac, there's always some weird, interesting story behind it. So he submitted that and, uh, it was awesome. And he sent in a few more videos to be stitched together. But the thing I want to focus on here is that, uh, it was great, good, cool audio. You could hear little differences there, a little, uh, fluctuation, pardon me, fluctuations in, uh, in the audio. So I enhanced the audio and this is what I got back. And this is what's going to be Sing Syme's submission for Spooky Spokes. What it sounds like inside the helmet of a deranged Spooky Spoke Hunter. Hello, Creative Writing. This is uh, Chris Sing Syme here from... Uh Waukesha, Wisconsin. Uh, this edition of uh, Spooky Spokes, I decided to go uh, about 137 miles-ish north of home to uh, Plainfield, Wisconsin, where uh, the butcher of Plainfield is from, Ed Gein, and I'm actually right outside of the property where the old house was and where they found all of the pretty gross things that were going on there. Uh, shortly after he was caught, the uh, residents around here figure they uh, burnt the house down and then it was bulldozed shortly after that um, but there was quite a few things found on the property um, he was known as a serial killer he only was convicted of one murder though he was more of a grave robber uh, made things around his house out of human body parts and pieces of people it was, it's pretty gross if you ever get a chance to look up the list of what they found in his house when they caught him it's uh it's pretty off off the chart um, yeah, one of the people he was possibly suspected of killing was his own brother. After uh, his brother sort of mouthed off to his mom, he uh, he didn't really like that too much. He was kind of fond of his mom. Um, once his mom died, he kind of became a hermit and uh, kind of stuck around being a homebody, doing a lot of weird stuff here. But uh, the whole thing up here... This kind of 
feels weird being here even. This, the whole area's got a real weird, creepy feel. I don't know if it's just the kind of day it is or just knowing what was actually going on behind me. Um, but now we're going to go actually check out the uh, cemetery where he's buried and actually the same cemetery where he would go and uh, dig up fresh bodies for uh, parts and pieces for his projects. So I'll check back from there. So I found the cemetery where Ed Gein is buried. Um, it's a really spooky little cemetery here. It's one of those small town cemeteries that you drive past and you know, if you blink, you miss it because there's not, it just doesn't cover a lot of ground. Um, but this cemetery is where uh, he would come and pick graves that were uh, fresh, freshly buried graves so he could, he could disturb the ground and get what he needed and nobody would know that anything old was ever dug up. But if you look behind me here, he's actually, his grave is the, uh, the blank spot in the ground there between his mom and his brother. There's a bare spot of dirt there where people still come and take, um, take bits of dirt for like a whatever creepy reason. The headstone that was originally there, people would come and chip away at it, take take uh, little pieces of the rock home with them. Then the headstone was actually stolen and then recovered, and I believe it still sits in the basement of like City Hall or something. Um, they won't put it back because people will still come and try to take it and take pieces of it. Um, it's just weird to think that he died in 1984, which in the grand scheme of things isn't really all that. This type of stuff kind of goes on in the world is weird that uh, he would just, middle of the night, decide that he needed to come to this particular cemetery, dig up bodies, and take parts and pieces of whatever he needed for whatever his uh, sick mind had in mind. Um, in his house, they actually found a bunch of shrunken heads that, at the time, he would tell people they were from his cousin that was in the military, that was in the Philippines, was sending them to him. You but he was actually, they were actually head. real <laughs> shrunken, or real heads that he had, uh, he had did the tanning process or whatever and shrunk them down and uh, had them on display. Uh, he had skulls all over his house on the corners of his bedpost. Um, it's really weird. I mean, if you want to get freaked out, just look up Ed Gein and the list of stuff they found in his house. Pretty nasty. Uh, I don't really like being in the cemetery right now, so if it wasn't for your stupid podcast, and I wouldn't be here. But it's history, which I kind of dig. I don't really dig the, uh, the gruesome factor. But it was a ride. It's 50 degrees out in Wisconsin. This will be my last ride for the year, I think. So I hope this uh, this qualifies for spooky spooks because I'm freaked the hell out. Come back and visit me, Chris. That's why I can't hear myself. I'm 
not turned up, but that was hella creepy. Hella creepy, Chris. I got to hand it to you. That enhanced audio, I don't know what that was in the background there, but um, kind of creepy. I know that wasn't you, Chris, but I would double check my helmet and my recording equipment and maybe never go back to the cemetery of Ed Gein. If you want to want to find out more about Ed Gein, I think they might even base the the guy in Silence of the Lambs off of him, wearing human skins and all that stuff. <laughs> creepy stuff, really creepy. And the fact that this stuff happened and is probably happening somewhere, you know, sure, a dingo ate your baby in Australia, but it's probably happening there too. Some weird stuff going on around the world. All right, everybody. Now it's time for Junk's Halloween submission, Spooky Spokes, uh, tale of eh, terror, tragedy more so. And uh, this year comes from right in my backyard. I love how you can hear the fan of the computer in the background. It's making things not creepy. (laughs) So anyway, listen, here's my tale. My tale starts back, I believe, in 1914. I think that's when this tale takes place. I'm a little sketchy on the details, and I learned about this character uh, from a couple couple different podcasts. One of the podcasts I listen to regularly is Last Podcast on the Left, and they did a wonderful four-part series on L. Ron Hubbard. And Elron was featured because him and the person I'm going to be talking about uh, kind of intermingled. You know, Elron famously creating creator of Dianetics, the uh, dumbest book in the world, and also the uh, awesome creator of Scientology, which is, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, also <laughs> the dumbest book in the world. Um, and uh, so, yeah, anyway... Elron was this crazy fraud, you know, fraudulent guy and tried to do a bunch of stuff to, to make money and ended up making money and in the weirdest of ways and in many ways ruined a lot of people's lives. And this next person, I'll quit snapping my show notes. How's that? It's not very creepy unless they're thunder. Let me run. Let me rustle the show notes real quick. Now that's how you rum, rumble paper. All right. So... My spooky spoke starts out like this. I pass this uh, every Saturday, and I've ridden this area many times on my motorbike. If you're familiar with Pasadena, uh, if you're familiar with Los Angeles in general, you know Pasadena was a quiet little suburb. Back in the turn of the century, I want to say, Pasadena was where you would go to get away from the hustle and bustle of Los Angeles. Now, Los Angeles, the city in general, uh, the full name of it is some weird, long um, Spanish name, Los Angeles, Ciudad de la Reina, al, I don't know, al lado de Rio de something, something. It's a, it's a very long name, and it's shortened to Los Angeles. So there's already enough crazy history if I go back any length of time to when this was still Mexico, which was actually fairly recently compared to you folks like in Wisconsin and New York and Massachusetts and even Australia, all you guys that have been, been around for quite a while, California was Mexico, literally just, um, uh, not too far before the turn of the century. 
And um, I mean, if you were born at the turn of, if you were born uh, right around the Civil War, I think California was becoming a state right around then or something like that. And definitely by the time that uh, um, the gold rush happened, they're like, oh, we got to get our hands on that. We got to get that shit away from Mexico ASAP, right? So there's all sorts of weird, crazy stuff. Once California became a state, um, there's all crazy sorts of stuff that happened out here where I'm not 100%. Trump would have gone crazy because I'm not sure how they handled people that were Mexicans already living here that were Mexicans, um, you know, before uh, before even Mexico was, you know, all the way established here. I, I don't know how, how it worked, but there was definitely Mexican wealth here in Los Angeles um, when California was annexed from Mexico or like fought, we fought with Mexico to, you know, reestablish the borders kind of where we wanted them. And, um, I think that's, that's what a war is all about. Usually it's about turf. Right. And so I think when California became a state, the Mexicans that lived here at the time when it was still Mexico, when it turned to California, we just said, Hey, you're Californians now. California was like a free Republic or whatever. That's, you know, kind of how states kind of still work. They're free to do their own things. But, uh, when back there, back then in the wild, wild West days, um, all sorts of crazy stuff was happening. I almost did a, uh, story about Griffith park, which is crazy. And, um, so I decided not to, even though I've written there too, I'll save that for another time. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'll save that for another time. I'm getting a tickle in my throat. Oh my God. Am I being possessed by a phantom microphone? No. <clears throat> Excuse me, I just had that burp to come out. Um, actually, I just burped out a ghost. Holy shit. Hi, buddy. Okay, he flew out the door. Never mind. He's gone. Uh, I guess that wasn't a burp. That was a poltergeist inside my throat. Uh, so uh, all sorts of history, all sorts of tragedy, all sorts of um, curses and spirits happening here in Los Angeles. Um, and of course, murders left and right, riots, you know, you name it. I had all sorts of stuff to pick from, but the one that I'm going to pick that I picked, uh, not only because I go by it every damn Saturday to drop my kid off at soccer. And, uh, I've gone by there before, but also because if you're familiar with the motorcycle podcaster challenge, you guys know that every year an L pops up and, uh, I've, gone up to uh, La Cunada Flint Ridge all the time because that's a pretty, it's a, it's a, the name of the town, La Cunada hyphen Flint Ridge. That's a lot of points, you know, for an L city. So, uh, yeah, it's a shoe in. And so I go there every year and, uh, right up there is this place called JPL, which is Jet Propulsion Laboratories, but we really know what JPL stands for. I'll get to it in a minute, but, um, yeah, backing up to all that to get make all this make sense. Let's go back to 1914, which is when I believe Marvel Whiteside Parsons was born. Now, Marvel Whiteside Parsons, um, I forget the podcast that I learned about him from uh, specifically, but it was a pretty good one, and I'll find it and put it in the show notes. But his dad was a philanderer, and so his mom said, none of that, I'm renaming you to John Whiteside Parsons, and you know, the nickname for John is Jack, so Jack Parsons. I believe he was born in 1914, right when, I think the Wright brothers, I don't remember when their flight happened, was it like 1911 or 1912? I mean, we're talking about 
World War One had just happened, and people were just using biplanes and shit in World War One. You know what I'm saying? And jets hadn't been made yet. Like really cool P-51 Mustangs, all that cool stuff that we like to think of in World War II. When we're going back to World War One, it was literally dudes dropping grenades out of planes. There was no bombers. You know, machine guns were um, mechanically driven off the propeller so that you didn't shoot, you know, <laughs> your propeller up. And, uh, you know, that was time. so it was timed that the bullets would shoot when the propellers were... Uh, parallel spinning around, right? Things were very, very simple and simpler because aviation was a brand new thing. And this dude, Jack Parsons, was born right at this time when there were no, there were not rockets. Rocketry was not a thing, and he liked to play with the uh, explosives and rockets. And um, my kid has soccer down in the Royal. Arroyo Seco. And that's actually where I recorded last year's song, Under the Suicide Bridge. The Pasadena Bridge is a really, uh, the Colorado Street Bridge, actually. It goes over the Arroyo. And down in the Arroyo, I believe Augustus Bush, I'm not 100% sure on this, but around like the turn of the century, I think Augustus Bush had a, the, the first Bush Gardens down there or something like that. And um, there was, it's, it's beautiful down there. There's a whole bunch of crazy stuff down there. The Rose Bowl's down there. Um, the, there's a golf course. A uh, very beautiful arroyo, which is like a dry, you know, a dry riverbed, um, and it gets pretty crazy down there. And it's actually really pretty. And just on the other side of the arroyo is JPL, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where NASA does a lot of their stuff, and and a lot of cool stuff comes out of JPL. Well, Jack Parsons, when he was a little kid. Uh, around, I don't know, I don't know how old he was. I'm guessing like 12 or 13. Him and his buddy were going down blowing stuff up in the Arroyo before, of course, before the Rose Bowl was there and before it was anything. It was just a wilderness. And if you belong to the Pasadena Hunt Club, which I'm, I hope none, nobody here does, it's like a very uh, elite, you know, high society club. I think that was established back when you could actually hunt in the Arroyo when there was wild animals running around through there. Now we, we have the occasional bear and mountain lion in there today, but, uh, I mean, I'm talking like he probably went down there and shot ducks and turkeys and bobcats and all sorts of crap, you know? And, and, uh, it was probably the real deal wild thing. And so when Jack Parsons lived in Pasadena, he lived adjacent to here and he would go down there all the time. And, uh, him and one of his good buddies would conduct ex- experiments and they would do it with, um, you know, blow up little things, make little toy, you know, explosives and, and, uh, shoot BB guns down there. Probably. I don't know. They did all sorts of stuff down in the Arroyo and he started to, like every boy does find a fascination with certain things like, you know, some kids love rockets. I had a friend that loved rockets and and guns and all that stuff when he was a kid, and he really got into all those things and became a pretty like good source. You know, if he wanted to ever get into this stuff, he was a guy you could just go. He had all the answers, you know, and he was a really smart, technical guy, and that's why he nerded out on this stuff. Well, that basically sums up Parsons in a in a nutshell. And I don't want to go off the. I don't want to go off the rails right now and say that he wanted to be a conjure Satan or something like that. But I vaguely remember that like early in his teenage years, he wanted to either like be a demon or like be a magician or something like that. And then he's like, ah, well, science is cool. So he always kind of had this weird, like nerdy dark side. And you got to remember 
he's he's grown up he's born right before the depression you know his, uh, things are like um just starting out in the world of aviation and all this new stuff, kind of like bicycles were becoming a big thing when the Davidsons got into motorcycling and Ralph and Hendy was winning race, you know, uh, George Hendy and Oscar Hedstrom and those guys were like doing magnificent stuff with bicycles and winning races left and right. So they decided to make a motorized bicycle, sort of the same sort of thing. Um, fat, but, and it's kind of around the same, same time. I mean, 10 years later, you know, aircraft and, and motorcycles are just, just blooming and becoming things that kind of resemble what they are today. And so Jack Parsons, um, he's down there doing his little experiments um, he started getting into science and he started, uh, he, he never graduated. I'll just, I'm going to kind of blow that right now. He never graduated from college, but he did go to PCC as I did go to Lancers, you know, spent a few semesters there just like me. Um, he also went to like Harvard or something like that. And he went to a bunch of other places, but he never got his degrees, but he was really smart guy and he was an expert on explosives. And so he started, he figured out like all these weird little things with his toy rockets when he was growing up as a kid. And as he got older, he started uh, putting these fuels together that were like really, really, really useful. He basically developed solid rocket fuel all on his own. And he was, um, I forget, Galsit or Calcit, something like that. Him and Caltech got together. He lived, uh, he worked, he was associated with Caltech. Let's put it that way. He was affiliated with Caltech, which if you know, I, I mean, Caltech's crazy. I drove there by there before and it's just like, you could feel that you're in the presence of like crazy, nerdy, great minds, right? And so he had this thing going with Caltech that he was uh, helping them with their rocket stuff. He got a, he got, uh, when World War II hits, you know, we're, like I'm saying, we're just on this, uh, just on the, on the new side of, of aviation in general. And uh, people are still not interested in rockets yet. And he, he was back when he was um, doing his rocket stuff, you know, learning about rockets and making his own rockets. He was in contact with Werner von Braun, who was one of Hitler's main guys who helped, who created the V2 and created these long range missiles for Germany. Right. And so it's interesting. He did all this stuff, um, you know, and was friends with all these people before we knew that there was going to be a war. And I don't know if Warner Von Braun actually took any of his stuff to get missiles over here because the V2 and most of Germany's rocket technology was based off two strokes, which is actually uh, a whole nother story in, in, uh, in and of itself that I'm actually have been researching for like a year and a half now. It's super, super interesting. Been reading a whole bunch of stuff on that and how that uh, kind of helped develop you know, motorcycle technology as well. But Jack Parsons was working on solid state rocket fuel. From what I, what I understand, he used asphalt. He saw that asphalt was used as a binding agent and some stuff. And he's like, aha, I'm going to put this like super volatile stuff, bond it with asphalt. And there I have solid rocket boosters. So people didn't like the idea of rockets back. This is like literally coming out of world war one, where we used biplanes and threw rocks and and grenades out of them. You, you had a bomb deer that dropped bombs. You know, you didn't have a, a sophisticated launching systems. So we didn't have missiles. We didn't have rockets. We had physically 
shot and launched and dropped stuff, okay? And so World War II comes along and he's created solid rocket fuel. So now we can have missiles, uh, we can have propelled things and he actually gets a job um, with uh, with the Defense Department and he gets a whole bunch of crazy clearance and he invents JATO, which is Jet Assisted Takeoff and they called it jet, not rocket, because people were like super against, so rockets were super sci-fi at the time. You got to think this is like World War II. This is the 1930s and 40s. War of the Worlds is happening. You know, War of the Worlds on the TV at, or on the radio, I think was like late 30s. Um, and people had just seen the Hindenburg crash. World War II was coming up. People already knew Germany and, and other places like that were were, you know, we were primed for something crazy to happen. So they didn't like the idea of rockets. It sounded too sci-fi. It was still too new. So they called it jet assisted takeoff and jet engines and jet propulsion laboratories was established. So jet, 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 not rocket. Okay. And uh, nowadays, whenever we think of rockets, we think of the great, you know, everything that shoots us into space and everything. Great. We don't have any qualms about it. But back then it was all a little too weird to say uh, rocket, you know, and then, uh, come World War II, the Germans made the V2 rocket, you know, and so that was just really taboo at the time. So he's a really brilliant guy, and he had um, a really brilliant uh, established like work, um, you know, all sorts of crazy cool stuff. He made aero, I think he was his company was called Aerojet. And I think he had to dissolve that when he started working with JPL because the Department of Defense um, wanted wanted all of uh, his stuff to be his. So I think he dissolved Aerojet, sold some of it off. Um, I think he was married to a girl, I forget her name, um, but uh, maybe Marjorie or something like that. And on the side, this kid who, going back to his teenage, when I said I think he wanted to be a magician or the devil or something like that, I can't remember exactly, but he's based 100% in science, obviously, but also science and science fiction cross the lines a little bit. And so he, uh, on the weekends and at night, has this crazy sort of like uh, secret life, secret identity. And he's into like Satanism. He's in, he... he uh, writes to Aleister Crowley and he's part of the church of Thelema, which Aleister Crowley was a famous Satanist from England at, at the time. And, uh, so he's into like these dark magics and he's, he's into magic spells and he's into, uh, rituals and things like that. And if you think about it, science really is sort of a weird crossover of magic. People used to Scientists used to be considered wizards, you know. Uh, if you were a um, not an apothecary, but what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, an alchemist, you were basically like an early scientist trying to turn anything into gold, right? Like steel into gold, iron into gold, whatever into gold. But you were also mixing up like weird little potions, and even healers could be considered doctors nowadays. Would be considered like wizards and witches and mages and all that stuff, casting spells. But it was all science based what they were doing, you know, all these potions and healing stuff. And, uh, even shaman, shamanic rituals had a little bit of faith. And nowadays people, when they're like working on space or working on a cure for, you know, cancer, they have to have a little bit of faith because it's unknown until you prove it. And so it, it, it doesn't take a lot to see how he could like kind of merge the two science and magic. And so 
like I'm saying, on the weekends, he was part of this science fiction crazy nerd thing that happened in the basement of some hotel down in, in Los Angeles. And a lot of science fiction writers were there and a lot of crazy, uh, you know, crazy pulp at the time. It was like alien from aliens from Mars, you know, and they had the cover of the alien ripping off the lady's shirt and like the army guys in, in green, like shooting them. Like it was a total, Everything you can think of from the 40s. Ah, damn it. My paper just flew off my lap, but I know it wasn't a ghost. Hang on one sec. I'm pretty sure it flew pretty far, but I'm pretty sure that was me knocking it off and it just happened to fly. Uh, Thanks to aerodynamics, which is something Jack Parsons would know about. So anyway, Parsons uh, does all this um, secret society stuff on the weekends, like I'm saying. And he does it from this place called the, he calls his um, family's mansion down there in Pasadena next to the Arroyo, the Parsonage. And it's on Orange Grove. And um, I can take pictures of it if you'd like. And I did, I did a little spooky spoke ride for it, but you know, it's not there today. Like I'm saying, Pasadena was like a wilderness back in, the, in these times compared to what it is nowadays. It's basically just an extension of LA now uh, with lots of houses. And although they are big, they're kind of big estates down there on Orange Grove and there's a lot of crazy old houses there. There's no sprawling mansion with like acres of, you know, uh, orchards and whatever he had there and a whole farm and this and that. So he put an ad in the papers saying bohemians, actors, artists, nudists, uh, Satanist, cultists, whatever you, you know, um, musicians, beatniks, uh, anybody, poets, free thinkers that wants to come live here, come do it. I need, you know, he thrived on that sort of stuff. He was doing copious amounts of drugs. I'm assuming mostly cocaine and, and, uh, weed. And back then you have to imagine also, this is like during the times of reefer madness, you know, everyone thinks marijuana makes you go insane. And nowadays they're like, Oh no, it's recreational and it's good for, you know, you use it medicinally, whatever. But back then like reefer madness, it was, uh, and it's still a schedule one drug or whatever. I mean, it's like you get, uh, it's higher listed on the, um, dangerous drugs list than, than, uh, heroin, I think. And, um, they're doing it, you know? So people were like starting to look at this guy like, Ooh, okay. And even the government finally, well, this is much later down the line caught onto it. But before all that happens, uh, during one of his little things where he's, um, you know, he's a Satan, like I said, he was a Satanist and he would talk to Aleister Crowley and he's going to these meetings. He runs into a pulp author down there, like Ray Bradbury, I think he met. And he met a couple other guys that went to this sort of secret underground sci-fi stuff that was super taboo. Sci-fi was not uh, a thing. And it started to grow and grow and grow until we get all the great movies from the late forties and fifties, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Creature from the Black Lagoon, all this stuff. It was like, growing. And this is when it was still in its infancy and sort of like a weird, you know, you're kind of weirdo, but you're a total nerd and you're a scientist. So it totally all makes sense. You know, sci-fi and nerds, God, they just got together in these sweaty basements and just had like fun little conventions. Right. So he meets this other pulp uh, author there named L. Ron Hubbard. And L. Ron Hubbard happened to be like a hacky pulp guy that I think was doing like kind of fluff pieces. He was trying to get it into, um, I think he was trying to be like a journalist, but they kind of kept giving him like fluff pieces here and there and this and that. But he did write some pulp. He got famous from like his uh, trashy like sci-fi novels and they because they went along with that genre. And if you go back and look at some of the 30s and 40s, 
um, sci-fi it didn't have to be like you know groundbreaking like a lot of those M. Night Shyamalan blonde um, it just had to be kind of crazy and kooky and out there and uh, gives people something to read we're talking about the days of radio man we didn't have uh, cell phones and stuff back then I remember it well those years but um, so Aaron Hubbard had his own wife back in Montana and I think he had a couple kids and uh, he f- went into the army, and not to get into L. Ron Hubbard, but he's, in a, he's an integral part of the story. So he goes into the Navy, and he's one of the worst, like, naval command. They gave him command of a sub, and he's hunting Germans <laughs> off of Los Angeles, and he's bombing stuff, and there's nothing there. And it turns out he was a hack. Um, he was a hack uh, rider. He was a hack um, guy in the Navy. And I, I learned that I was biased uh, to that by last podcast on the left. They talk, they they trash him on that show. Um, but anyways, he meets um, Crowl or uh, he meets Jack Parsons, and he's like, "Hey, another nerd!" And hey, this nerd's got a cool place where I can crash and get some grub for free, and it's huge, and it's in Pasadena, and it's called the Parsonage. And I think I'm gonna go there and and hang out for a while. His wife, in the meantime, in Montana, hasn't heard from him since he enlisted in the Navy during World War II. I don't think she thinks he's dead because I think she's probably getting a paycheck or whatever. But he comes in to the parsonage, and at this time, uh, you know, Jack Parsons has been doing a whole bunch of drugs. He's been working on Jado, you know, Jet Assisted Takeoff. He's been, you know, doing his solid rocket fuel. He's been doing his Satan rituals at night and on the weekends with his friends doing copious amounts of cocaine. Him and his wife started to get into like a little bit of a, you know, she needed a break, man. And she had a younger sister. I think Marjorie was his wife. And I think the younger sister's name was Sarah. And, uh, L. Ron Hubbard shows up and this dude's charismatic. I mean, you don't just get, get into, uh, the Navy and get a sub and start bombing stuff when you're a total hack, uh, commando just because of, you know, your skills. You're, he was he was a charmer. And as soon as Parsons met this guy at that convention, he's like, wow, this guy's got charisma. And he felt this connection to him. It could have been the cocaine. But at the same time, they nerd, They were both into sci-fi. They nerded out. And L. Ron Hubbard comes back to the Parsonage. And uh, let me see where my notes happened here. So, yeah. So Parsons contacts Crowley. And he says... Uh, you know, hey, I met this dude at the so-and-so convention, and uh, I, I, I didn't mention this, that Jack Parsons is actually the leader of the Agape um, branch of the OTO, which these the Ordo Templis Orientis or something like that, which is the Church of the Lima, which is the uh, Thelemic practice that Aleister Crowley had that was all about like rituals and demons and blah, blah, blah. Maybe maybe it was Satan. I'm not 100% sure if it was Satan, but it was definitely uh, the Church of the Lima, whatever that, whatever that is. And um, so, you know, Jack Parsons is the leader of that as well as this crazy, brilliant jet propulsion guy. And um, he says, man, I met this dude named Elrond and he's really cool and like charismatic and I feel like he's got some crazy sort of magic. And if you listen, I'm not going to go too far into Elrond, but the last podcast on the left, like I said, did four episodes on him. And uh, it's really an interesting thing how all this like kind of meshed up together. But Parsons comes, uh, you know, invites him to come 
Hubbard comes to stay there at the parsonage. Uh, Hubbard runs off with um, Jack Parsons' wife, and uh, she she thinks, hey, Hubbard, who I think had kind of was a redhead too. So she's like, Oh, he's this different guy. He's a pasty white redheaded guy, pulp author, you know? And he was like into Jack Parsons, whatever Jack Parsons liked, he liked, you know, he's getting a free ride. Why not? He's having, you know, sex with his wife now, you know, and, uh, he's kind of doing all the, whatever. I don't know if he was doing the same drugs as Jack Parsons was, or if he was on the same trip as Jack Parsons was, but he was definitely on a trip and, uh, he was, he wanted to do some power. And I think he started Scientology, uh, based on one of the other authors that said, I bet you can't get, um, I bet you can't make a religion where people pay you or something like that. It was some weird side bet they had. And of course he writes Dianetics and Scientology is bored, but I think L. Ron Hubbard also wrote like Starship Troopers. And I think he wrote a bunch of other like pulp stuff like that. And you can see like a lot of actors that actually acted in these movies ended up converting to Scientology. So he must've been a pretty charismatic guy and his uh, half of Hollywood is fucking Scientologist now, which I can't understand, but I don't understand it. Um, I'm not, supposed to, I'm just supposed to tell you the story. But at any rate, L. Ron Hubbard, before all that happened, was trying to get a, you know, a quick buck here and there. He's kind of like a con man. So, um, so yeah, let me, let me, uh, pause here and look at my notes, make sure I'm telling you the story in order. All right, we're on track. <laughs> so L. Ron Hubbard was trying to get benefits from the VA when, uh, Jack Parsons met him. That's how down and out he was. He was trying to like get him for disability or something like that. And, uh, so yeah, Hubbard came back to the parsonage, stole Parsons girlfriend, which is actually, he stole Parsons wife. And so Parsons was like, Hey, your her, his wife's younger sister, Sarah was looking pretty hot. Although she was like only 15 or 16, but her and Parsons fell in love and ended up getting married later anyway. And a lot of people got married at 15 and 16 back then. I think my grandma and grandpa were like 16 when they got married. Um, but anyway, so yeah, the this parsonage estate was this huge mansion there in Pasadena. Hubbard says, Hey Jack, give me some of your money. So Jack sells Aerojet, I believe. And he sells everything that he had and he gives Hubbard the money. Cause Hubbard had this th- scheme. He's going to buy a bunch of yachts, sail them around Cape Horn or whatever, bring them back and sell them to the people in uh, LA to do these wonderful trips or something like that. He had some weird scheme and Jack Parsons was so railed out of his mind, um, trying to do these crazy rituals and all this stuff because El- him and Elron, uh, he's talking to Aleister Crowley and Aleister Crowley, he wants to, Hubbard convinces him to like try to summon this thing called the moon child, which is basically like the antichrist. And so Parsons on top of doing like all this crazy, um, st- stuff for the military by day, by nighttime, he's doing all these crazy things, which involves like a lot of sex and a lot of like rituals and all sorts of crazy stuff to summon the antichrist. Right. And it, and it goes on for a while on last podcast on the left, they said 11 rituals for 11 days, but on this other podcast that I can't remember, but I'll put in the show notes, they said it lasted for a while. It wasn't, didn't sound like 11 days or if it was 11 days, it wasn't 11 consecutive days, but whatever. So they're doing all this crazy stuff. Uh, trying to summon the moon child and Elrond's just right there the whole time. Like, yeah, man, yeah, man. And after Elrond stole, um, 
Maybe he did steal his, yeah, that's right. He did steal his, uh, his girlfriend, Sarah. His, his, so, so Parsons and his wife kind of were like on the outs. He starts hooking up with her younger sister and who was really supposedly really attractive. And that's right. Elrond shows up and snags her. <laughs> so <laughs> he's already done dirty and Elrond's still married, remember to some chick in Montana. And so, uh, so yeah, what, what he does is he, he goes along with Parsons trying to summon the moon child. Uh, in the meantime, I believe, I believe the military is starting to go, Hey, this dude's into this weird thing called the OTO, the church of Thelema. He's doing some crazy stuff. He's obviously reeled out of his mind. He's been doing all these crazy rituals. They start taking away his clearances, um, and his affiliation with JPL, which was Jack Parsons laboratory. But then they, you know, the, the name was Jet Propulsion because they're like, eh, we can't be, we didn't want to be affiliated with Jack Parsons. So we're going to start calling ourselves Jet Propulsion Laboratory because, and not rockets, by the way, remember that, not rockets. But so he helped found, J, I mean, he, him and some of the guy was the founder of JPL. He founded Aerojet, all this great stuff that he had, all this future that he was working for and this crazy OTO uh, thing that he had going on and, and the, um, this whole huge mansion that he called the Parsonage where all these bohemians and actors and free thinkers stayed at. L. Ron Hubbard shows up with his crazy boat scheme and uh, the military starts looking at him and going, yeah, and pulling all his clearance for it. So he sells Aerojet and I think he had to sell the Parsonage to fund L. Ron Hubbard's crazy yacht scheme. But they do find, they do try, they almost summon the moon child. They needed a... Um, they needed a red-headed woman. I'm getting a little bit of my health uh, ahead of myself with this boat theme. They needed a red-headed woman to uh, to make this moon child, and they find her. They go out to the desert after all the rituals, and, and then he's like, man, it, it's done. We needed this crimson woman or a scarlet woman, whatever, and they get back, and there is a redhead, and he had to put it in the paper, though, show up here, and you could be impregnated by me. So a redheaded chick showed up. So I don't know if it's totally coincidence or ritual or what happened there, but a redheaded lady showed up. Elron Hubbard's there while they're doing the, the sex thing and impregnating her and trying to get the moon child. Well, him and this girl actually do fall in love. And I think it was Elron Hubbard trying to say, dude, I'm sorry you were out with your wife and you like started dating her little sister. And I'm sorry I showed up and stole her sister away from you. So here we're going to get you a hot redheaded chick. And he did. So I think that was L. Ron Hubbard's way, not really of saying, I believe you. And we're going to summon the antichrist. I think it was like, bro, I kind of owe you one. So here's this redheaded lady that you can live with uh, for the rest of your life. So he did. He, he, uh, ended up hooking up with her while L. Ron Hubbard took Sarah and bailed. And I don't even know what happened to his wife. I think she eventually filed for divorce and, um, tried to get some money out of this yacht scheme that I'm talking about. So L. Ron bails, Parsons sells everything he has and gives it to Elrond. And then he's like, wait a second, like what the F? Like in a moment of clarity, he probably quit doing a lot of cocaine. Elrond's going to go to Florida and like buy a bunch of yachts and sail them around South America back to California. And then we're going to sell them and make a billion dollars. Like, cause people want to sail boats. Like, I don't think so. So he goes to Florida right when Elrond is taking all of his money and all of his boats <laughs> And well, he's actually only got one boat, but he's got all of Jack Parsons money. He buys this boat. He's just about to sail out of port and, and Jack Parsons is like, Hey, waving at him from the port or whatever. And he's taking off and Jack Parsons runs back to get a hotel room, does a um, spell real quick. And 
lo and behold, these winds come out of nowhere or this giant squall or something like that. And it brings Elrond back to port. He can't leave Florida. And, um, so he, Jack Parsons confronts him and then Sarah, I believe her name's Sarah, um, whatever his wife's, uh, sister's name was the younger sister. She says, listen, man, you, uh, you got to quit doing that. I think he cast two spells. I think they tried to leave twice and he casted two spells and they brought him back. So, I mean, if that's not ritual or some sort of weird magic working, I don't know what is. Maybe he really was magic in a weird way. Maybe he used rockets to control the universe. I have no idea. But anyway, Elron Hubbard gets brought back to port and, um, two times from what I understand. And when he's confronted and when Parsons confronts him, he says, listen, uh, or actually the girl says, listen, we're not going to give you your money back. And if you try to get it back, I'm going to say that you statutorily raped me because I was only like 15 or 16, even though she was like, it was fully like a free love fest happening there at his house. Um, she could, you know, she could still hold that against him, even though it was consensual. It technically was a statutory rape. So he was like, Ugh. and from what I understand, he only got 3000 bucks back of his like whatever I, I i mean houses in pasadena aren't cheap now i'm sure they weren't cheap back in the 40s or whenever he sold it in his company aerojet i mean you're making solid rocket fuel and jet assisted takeoff for the military there's no way you're not making a pretty good coin so he goes back to pasadena broken and penniless thanks to l ron hubbard who helped ruin his life um i don't know whatever came of the moon child I guess, I mean, the Antichrist and the end of the world never did happen. And Aleister Crowley, like, was uh, overdosed from heroin. I think he was dying at the time when uh, L- when um, Jack Parson was reporting to him how cool Elrond was. So shortly after that, Aleister Crowley died. I don't know if Elrond Hubbard technically had anything to do with that. But, uh, yeah, after the boat scandal and he comes back and... Uh, he tried to sue him for the money. Let me see. He, oh yeah. So he tries to sue him for the money. That doesn't go so well. He then decides he's going to go down to Mexico or something crazy like that. I don't know what the deal was, but him and him and his wife, the Scarlet Woman, who are supposedly going to, you know, summon the Moon Child, they stick together actually, and they're together for a while, and they're making bootleg nitroglycerin. He's like a nitroglycerin master, right? He's making all sorts of nitro. He's selling it to people. In Mexico, um, he's selling it all over. I don't know. He's slinging nitro and doing cocaine. <laughs> so, uh, and, and he's a broken man at this point, and he's just getting back on his feet. And and I forget exactly how he was supposed to uh, come back, but it, but the FBI is looking into him at this point. I think because the OTO stuff, and because they're like, hey, there's like a guy who's rumored to be making uh, nitroglycerin and they obviously they know him from his connections with the military and mysteriously right before his huge payoff happens right before his comeback he blows up in a freak accident he had made he had moved back to Pasadena and in the garage or uh I think it was the garage or basement or washroom or something like that he had made up like a little laboratory and he was agitating something in the the solid fuel or something like that. And supposedly his hand slipped and he dropped whatever he was mixing. I, f- I forget the compounds, but it totally blew him up. It like blew off his arm, blew a hole in his head and like blew his guts out. He didn't die immediately, but like he was pretty much dead. They took him to the hospital where my kids were born, which is Huntington Memorial. And um, 
Yeah, I think he died there. Like he either arrived dead or he was like pretty much dead when he got there um, shortly thereafter. But it's a super huge mystery. I don't think Elron Hubbard had anything to kill, do with killing him, but they were saying that, uh, you know, the military, did the military have something to do with it? Because here's a guy that's been like, since he was 14 blowing stuff up in the Arroyo, he's a crazy, crazy uh genius he's he basically invented solid rocket fuel he was he invented you know jpl he did all this great stuff with uh jets jet propulsion and aeronautics and he's gonna slip his hand on the coffee can and blow himself up i mean i guess even the even the greatest ones make a mistake now and then but just seems kind of interesting i don't know if he was murdered uh or quote freak accident happened. But, um, if you go to the parsonage now, it's all gone. It's, it's raised. There's just a bunch of super high and expensive stuff down there on orange grove now, but the Arroyo is still there. I think if you go to YouTube, uh, and look at creative writing, I think I did a, a ride through the Arroyo. I didn't really have a good, uh, phone mount on my bike, but I will go through there again with one and show you just how beautiful it is over there. And if you've ever been to the Rose Bowl or ever seen footage of one of the Rose Bowls, actually, uh, Wiggins and I did a um, January 1st ride with the uh, New Year's Eve ride, actually, with the um, SoCal Norton Owners Group. And it's because the Rose Bowl is the very next day, and go ahead and watch the Rose Bowl. um, And the aerial footage from the blimp will show you the Arroyo and how cool it is. And also that ride that we do goes right up uh, the two, past La Cunada, past JPL, and up into the mountains above it. So we actually get a past Devil's Gate Dam, which was a creepy place I was going to ride to. We get a past La Cunada, which is where I go every year for the Motorcycle Podcasters Challenge. And JPL is right up there. And we actually like, you can look down at JPL as you're going up. Uh, headed up the two to do that ride. So we've actually, Wiggins unknowingly has kind of ridden with me past a few of these places, but the Arroyo, Orange Grove, all that crazy stuff, just Pasadena in general has a lot of crazy old history. And that's one spooky one where sci-fi, science, and uh, the unknown, possibly murder, possibly just a horribly cocaine-addled, sweaty accident, uh, ended one of the most brilliant, brilliant minds. And I think he was 37 years old, so not much older than Wiggins. Um, Yeah, one of the greatest minds in jet propulsion and fuels in general. Who knows what he could have done for motorcycles had he survived and and lived on to do some sort of rocket-propelled bikes. Things might be a little bit different nowadays, but yes, I will do a, maybe I'll do a ride by one of these days and you guys will get to see it. So at any rate, folks, that has been our spooky spokes. Thanks NCNC for your submission. Thanks Mrs. Riding. And I hope you enjoyed I try to do, I try to make this uh, a lengthy episode so it doesn't just turn out to be a 25 minute thing, but I hope you learned, liked hearing about some wacko from uh, Pasadena and until next week, um, if I'm still alive by then, uh, you'll, you'll hear us <laughs> next Friday on uh, creative writing. All right, everybody.
hey, what type of roads do ghosts like to ride their motorcycles on? Dead ends, 